Greetings to the brightest audience in the country, and welcome to Theology Thursday. I'm Nicole McBurney. Every weekday, we bring you the news of the day, the culture, and science from a Christian worldview. But today, join me and Pastor Bob Enyart as we explore the source of our Christian worldview, the Bible. If they had to, they'd use a winnowing fan, a fan, you know, a handheld fan, and they'd use a stick and beat it, and the chaff would fall and would blow aside, and then they would collect the grain. Now, what's the chaff? Well, it's that on barley or different grains, it's the dry, flaky, or even scaly enclosure around the wheat itself. It encloses the mature grain of wheat. And so that's what you'd want to be blown away. Now, these ideas are all significant symbols in the Bible. The threshing floor, the winnowing fan, the chaff, and the wheat. Since they're so significant, let's take a little bit of time and get a sampling of their use. Psalm 1 contrasts the steadfast man who is planted and shall not be moved with the man that is blown by the winds. Psalm 1, the man who delights in the Lord shall be like a tree planted by the rivers, deep roots, sturdy, unmovable. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore the ungodly shall not stand in judgment. And we could see how that figure applies so readily to spiritual matters. Likewise from Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to men who justify the wicked for a bribe. Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness because they have rejected the law of God. So the flame consumes the chaff. Boaz would have had a fire burning late that afternoon. They would have been harvesting all day and they'd have a stack of grain in sheaves and then they would take it and beat it, crush it, beat it with a stick and uh, the breeze or the winnowing fan and the chaff that collected, they would burn that and that's a typical symbol in the Bible, the wicked burning like the chaff, God burning them. The chaff is burned in the fire and the wheat is kept in the storehouse. And that agricultural term, winnow, a winnow is used by extension to mean getting rid of undesirable parts to examine closely and separate the good from the bad. So John the Baptist used this figure of speech in Matthew 3. He said that God's winnowing fan is in his hand and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So he will thoroughly clean his threshing floor. As you're doing this work, you could tell everything gets a mess. You know, so he's going to send his workers to sweep up and don't miss one bit of chaff, but burn it. But he's going to take care of the wheat, which is those who respond to the seed, the word of God. And Job said in chapter 21 that the wicked are like straw before the wind and like chaff that a storm carries away. And in Hosea, speaking of idolaters 
They shall be like the morning cloud and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor and like smoke from a chimney. That's the wicked. And smoke from a chimney, that last image works well for me. It lingers for a brief moment and it's gone. And so too will be God's enemies. They're causing trouble right now. But very briefly, it'll be over. Don this morning, Don is 73, and he said he remembers when he was in Japan when he was 19, and 54 years passed like that, he said. And I concur. I'm 41. But uh, the last 54 years of my life passed (laughs) just like that. I mean, it's quick. I remember high school as though it were yesterday. And every day, uh, it's just last week we were talking about the Deanovics coming over for lunch. And they were going to have lunch at our house this past week at on Wednesday, I think it was. And I was talking with my boys days before that. And I said, and we were talking, we were sitting at dinner. I said, now the Deanovics will be here Wednesday at noon. Make sure you're here. I, w- I want you to get to meet them. And, well, that's a few days from now. We've got time. Well, that moment will be here like that. You'll pick up your fork to put some food in your mouth, and when you put it back on the plate, it'll be Wednesday lunch. And now that's gone. (laughs) And it was like that. And they're gone. They're back on the road, headed to Minnesota. And they'll be back out here in a couple weeks to move to attend church here, which we can't wait till they get here. But life flies by, and the wicked are like smoke from a chimney. And the time of their opportunity to fight against God is gone. So I'm looking forward to that. So according to Naomi, Ruth's mother-in-law, her relative Boaz, verse 2, is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. And barley grows, it's native to Israel, and it's a grain used in cereals and other foods. And today, at least, we use it also to feed livestock. Verse 3 Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself, put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. And the harvest was a time of feasting. It would be like in business today if you're on a cycle and the first of the month is when you make all your sales or you get all your paycheck. And you say to your wife, honey, let's go out to dinner. I'm loaded. And so the harvest was the time they collected and they would celebrate. It would be like a feast. And so Naomi said, get ready, get cleaned up, put on your best garment. It had to be a warm garment too because she's going to be out all night. And go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known until he's finished eating and drinking. Now, it, don't make yourself known. How would she do that? Well, there were a crowd of workers and that would be the center focal point of their evening at the threshing floor. They too would be eating and drinking, preparing to settle down for the night. And she would be inconspicuous in her warm outer garment and the veil that she wore that we hear about later. Naomi's saying, just just melt into the background until a certain time. And Naomi continues, verse 4, Then it shall be when he lies down 
that you shall notice the place where he lies and you shall go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Now, since the fields were out some distance from town and since they would work late into the night and to protect his valuable grain, it was common for the master to sleep in the field at the threshing site. I checked a commentary written in 1929 and it said that peasants of Palestine uh, still sleep out in the open air at threshing time just as they did thousands of years ago. And Boaz would lie down near the same heap of barley that he had been harvesting. So this concise account we have here in Ruth is not exhaustive. It doesn't tell us every word that was communicated. And sure enough, we can tell that there's part of the instructions that are left out. But regardless, Ruth was very eager to obey all the instructions. And Naomi had said, go in, uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. Now, this is not advice I would give to my daughter if I had a daughter, which I don't. Quite the opposite. I'd say, if he tells you to lie down at his feet, I'll break his neck. (laughs) And even if it's her idea, I'd still break his neck. (laughs) So to Western minds, this advice sounds indelicate. Obviously, though, there was no immodesty implied. It would grow cool during the night. I recall that the barley harvest was at the end of March. And the workers, now including Boaz, would sleep in their work clothes and outer garments. And some Bible commentators, trying to make sense of this, say that, well, uh, when sleeping in a master's tent, an eastern servant would lay crosswise at his feet and warm themselves at the edge of his cloak. And I don't know if that's true or not. Commentators say all kinds of things. But I think that misses the point. I think she was here communicating to him her hope that was instilled in her from Naomi that he will exercise his right as a kinsman redeemer, redeem the land of her deceased father-in-law and marry Ruth as part of the package. That's what I think she was offering to him and communicating that desire. She's about to say, we'll read in a couple verses, she's about to say to Boaz, take your maidservant under your wing for you are a close relative, which is tantamount to a marriage proposal from the woman to the man in this instance and yes, an older man at that. Ruth chapter 3 verse 5 And she said to her, All that you say, Ruth said to Naomi, All that you say to me, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law instructed her. And after Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful, now little verses like that, we can tell, regardless of what the Baptists say, (laughs) he wasn't drinking grape juice. (laughs) He wasn't. It's not that he got plastered drunk, but if you're having a feast and God says, have have a glass of wine, you have a glass of wine, it raises your spirits. That's why they call it spirits, I guess. Just a little bit. And not. It's wrong to be drunk to get to the point where you're not in full control of your faculties. That's very evil. 
Is it temptation if you have one glass of wine and you feel a little better? Your worries don't worry you quite as much. So is there a temptation to have a second and a third and a fourth? There sure is. Absolutely. So that's a real concern. But Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was cheerful and he went to lie down and he dreamed of barley harvest all night long. And he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain and she came softly, uncovered his feet and lay down. So without waking him, Ruth covered herself with the edge of his cloak or lay near his feet and uncovered his feet and eventually... As it gets cool, it's March, late March in Israel, and at night it's going to get cool, and he's going to wake up. Now it happened at midnight that the man was startled and turned himself, and there a woman was lying at his feet. Remember that Boaz is a type of Christ. The heavenly Boaz is Jesus, and it is at his feet that we find rest. And it is only at Christ's feet that the nation of Israel will find their kingdom rest. As Mary found her rest from her labors, remember it was Martha that was laboring. And Martha was working. And Mary, we read in Luke 10, 39, Mary sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was working and laboring and said to Jesus, tell her to help me. And Jesus disagreed and said, Martha, you're worried But one thing is needed, and Mary has chosen that good part which will not be taken away from her. So do not let the cares of the world crowd out the hearing of the word, is the message of that little story. But even the great multitudes in Matthew 15.30, the great multitudes came and those who were lame and mute and maimed, and they laid down at Jesus' feet and he healed them. The feet, men fall down at one at another man's feet to beg for forgiveness. As in that parable of the unforgiving servant, when his friend fell down at his feet and begged him to forgive him the dead or give him time. And after learning that Christ had arose, the women went out quickly from the tomb. And in Matthew 28, they ran to bring his disciples' word. And as they went to tell his disciples... Behold, Jesus met them, saying, Rejoice! So they came and held Him by the feet and worshipped Him. So that picture goes on and on in the Gospels. The Gentile woman with the demon-possessed daughter in Mark 7 went and fell at Christ's feet, pleading with Him. The ruler of the synagogue, Jairus, begging for his daughter's life, fell at Christ's feet. Uh, Recall the woman, an infamous sinner who washed Christ's feet with her tears and dried them, wiped them with her hair. Well, as Naomi had said to Ruth in chapter 1, the Lord grant that you may find rest and in the house of her husband. She said, the Lord grant that you may find rest, Ruth, in the house of your husband. But she meant that you'll get another husband from Moab, here in Moab, and may the Lord grant that you find rest in his house. Well, she wasn't thinking of Ruth getting a husband in her own house back in Bethlehem. And this is the point of the story where Ruth is about to get a husband. Verse 9, 
Boaz said, Who are you? So she answered, I am Ruth, your maidservant. Take your maidservant under your wing, for you are a close relative. And that under your wing, I think in the King James, the idea was under your cloak. And so, which is right? Well, I think most literally it's under your wing, but perhaps it could be under your covering, under your cloak. It could imply both. This is the marriage proposal. I am Ruth. Take your maidservant under your wing. Recall that Boaz had said to Ruth just in the previous chapter, a full reward be given to you by the Lord under whose wings you have come for refuge. So Ruth here asks Boaz to take her under his wing. I want to read to you one verse out of Ezekiel 16, and it's a marriage verse regarding God and Israel. The Lord is speaking. He says, When I passed by you again and looked upon you, indeed, your time was the time of love. So I spread my wing over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine, says the Lord. So this figure of speech is associated with marriage. Spread your wing over me as God did to Israel and married her. Verse 10, Then Boaz said, Blessed are you of the Lord, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning, in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Now marriage was arranged by parents, and even though Ruth was a a grown woman, and Naomi was only her mother-in-law, it was customary and convenient for Naomi to play the role of matchmaker. And she was doing a very good job here. Probably did far better for Ruth than the young widow could have ever done for herself. Verse 11, And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you request. For all the people of my town know that you are a virtuous woman. Well, Ruth had worked in the field beside the maidservants and the laborers, yet she remained circumspect. She was virtuous. And in those circumstances, with women and men working together in the fields all day long and at the harvest, sleeping in the field, undoubtedly men and women developed romantic relationships out in the field, but Ruth remained pure. And everybody knew that. What does it say? All the people of the of my town. The King James Version says, all the city, all the city, and it's a figure of speech in English, because the city is like an inanimate object or a geographic place, and a city can't know something, but the city is used for the people. But actually in the Hebrew, the figure is different still. The word used is gate. So in the gate is used to represent all the people who gather at the gate and pass through the gate. And so the King James Version says, all the city of my people, the Hebrew, all the gate of my people, know that you are a virtuous woman. So the modern translations say, all the people of my town. And it loses the beauty of the figure, but it gets the point across. Verse 12. Now it is true that I am a close relative. However, There is a relative closer than I. 
Now, this beautiful little story, this romance of redemption with Ruth and Boaz, it's in the Bible in order to paint a picture to prefigure Christ and him being our kinsman redeemer. And it also connects his genealogy with those who came before him. And so we get the genealogy right up through David, coming through Boaz and going back to Judah. So there are those very important biblical reasons for this book to be here. It's not just this little event happened and somebody wrote it in a story and it read well, so they put it in the Bible. It was there for a purpose. So this little verse, does this just happen to be an incident, an historical reality that, well, there was a closer relative? Or did God know that and as he was orchestrating this, take advantage of it and have that written into the story? Now, it is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Now, Naomi must have known of the closer relative, but she was making a value judgment and passing over one family member for another, for Boaz. And on this issue of a closer relative, I'd like to repeat the idea that I started this study with, that Jesus became our kinsman. He became one of us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He became our brother. But he is not our closest relative. We have closer kinsmen than Christ. For he is a human being through Mary, but his father is God. So in that sense, he is our half-brother. In that sense, not the nearest kinsman, but close enough to do the job. And as we know, Jesus was the only kinsman willing to do the job and able to redeem us. For he took upon himself all the responsibility of performing this difficult task of redemption. So verse 12 says, It is true that I am a close relative. However, there is a relative closer than I. Adam is a closer relative, but he could not redeem the human race. He couldn't do it. Through his one act... Death came to all the world. And there was nothing he could do then to redeem it. But through his brother, humanly speaking, Jesus, through his one act, justification came to all and life came to those who turned to him. So Adam, our closer relative, who had held the future of the human race in his hands, he could not do the job. But And no man can. Adam, as standing as the federal head of the human race, Adam represents all men. And no one can save us. People put their hope, their eternal salvation hope, in their family, in their priest, in their what? In their job, in their vegetarianism, in the dirt, in the earth, in the animals. Nothing could do it. Nothing can redeem us except for Christ. Christ, our kinsman redeemer, is a close relative, not the closest, but he is the one who was able and willing. Verse 13, Stay this night, Boaz says to Ruth, stay this night and in the morning it shall be that if he will perform the duty of a close relative for you, 
good, let him do it. But if he does not want to perform the duty for you, then I will perform the duty for you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So not only is the redemption of the land at stake, Ruth's father-in-law's fields, but so is the caring for Ruth and the raising up of a descendant by her for the sake of her husband, Naomi's son. In the Mosaic Law, in Deuteronomy chapter 25, we read about this, and we'll look at this next week at the beginning of the study, Deuteronomy 25, verses 5 through 10. If a family is to marry off a childless widow to a brother-in-law, or by extension, a near kinsman, so that the family will raise up a child in the name of the deceased husband. So if in your family, if, if you lived back then and your brother was married and he died without having a son, then it was your duty to marry his widow and give her a son in the name of your brother. And that was custom and that was the Mosaic law. So we'll look at that. But that also had the effect of keeping the land ownership stable and in the original tribes and families since more fathers would eventually have sons in their name to receive their inheritance, especially since mortality rates were very high. And recall we've talked about women, typically wives outlive their husbands as they do to this day. And I don't know why the feminist would say that is. It must be discrimination of some sort. But uh, so God made sure that a man, if possible, even if he died childless, that he'd have a son in his name. And Ruth was a part of that whole culture. And those were not only the laws, but the customs that she was here operating under. Verse 14. So she lay at his feet until morning, and she arose before one could recognize another. It was still dark. Then he said, Do not let it be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. Boaz wanted to avoid any potential gossip. Get up early and leave. Uh, She had a very good reputation. He did not want to sully that reputation. Also, he said, Bring the shawl that is on you, and hold it. And when she held it, he measured six ephahs of barley and laid it on her. Then she went into the city. And bring that shawl. An eastern veil is a large sheet wrapped around the head and often to conceal the face. And so she would unwrap that and six ephahs of barley is about 18 gallons. So... um if he laid that on her, I don't know why it didn't kill her. <laughs> I don't know what it would have weighed, but how she could have managed that bulk alone. Perhaps she used a mule or something to get it into town, but she went into the city. Verse 16, So when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, Is that you, my daughter? Then she told her all that the man had done for her. And she said, These six ephahs of barley he gave me, for he said to me, Do not go empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And I think of the six water pots of stone in which Christ turned the water into wine. And here these six ephahs of barley 
that Boaz turns into a gift to Naomi as the bride price for Ruth. But there will be a greater price to pay still, as we'll see in chapter 4. Then Naomi said, Sit still, my daughter, until you know how the matter will turn out. For the man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. A very wise woman, this Naomi, an acute observer of human nature, and especially of the male of the species. Uh, The man will not rest until he has concluded the matter this day. And that's what I did too, the day I met Cheryl. I had to run out after her. Three months later, we were married. So Boaz, I think, moved a little faster than, than I did. But hey, I didn't have six ephahs of barley on hand. So God bless you all.